kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 17. Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude of the Jews and of the Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently, and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priests of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to serve the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. In our last study, Barnabas and Paul finished their work in Pisidian Antioch. While it is true that they were formally expelled from the city through a persecution that was incited against them, the word of God was still triumphant, and an outpost of Christ's kingdom was left behind. Luke ended that section with the preachers and whoever might be with them, now traveling ninety miles down the Via Sebaste to Iconium, This is still in the region of Galatia, but further east. It was something of an oasis in an otherwise arid territory where fruit trees grew plentifully and sheep could be raised in large numbers. So it became a profitable commercial center and drew a good-sized population. Verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews. This is, we know by now, their regular practice— and they maintain it for theological reasons as much as practical ones, even in spite of the often severe treatment they end up receiving most times. 
And they so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. The term a great multitude may be used relatively to the number of people who belong to the synagogue, but as we've said before, it isn't meaningless. The idea is that a very large number of people from among the Jewish and God-fearing Gentile populations became Christians, but not all of them. Verse 2, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. When Luke calls the disciples the brethren, this is one of the strongest indications that Theophilus, for whom he is writing this account, was himself a Christian. He says that the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds. And the phrase, poisoned their minds, is very sinister because it not only carries the idea that they convinced the Gentiles to become antagonistic against Paul, but that in so doing, they injured the Gentiles, and of course they did. By this act, the unbelieving Jews not only excluded themselves from the kingdom of God, but they also excluded those who they led astray and assured they would all perish together. Sometimes, in an effort to hurt someone, the aggressor hurts himself or herself and others in a much more severe way. But Paul's response to this opposition was strange. Luke says in verse 3, Therefore, they stayed there a long time. It is possible that Paul felt the new converts here would not have the strength to endure that was seen among the young Christians at Antioch of Pisidia. But perhaps he was also motivated by a desire to undo the damage which the unbelievers had done and attempt to save some of those who had been turned against him and thereby turned against Christ and against hope. What was a long time? We cannot be sure, perhaps a month or three or more, it was long in comparison to their previous stays, which seemed to not have been much longer than a week or two. But we're informed what they did during this time. Luke says they were speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. The gospel is called the word of his grace, to remind us that it was, at its very center, a message of justification by the merciful pardon of sins through Christ and not by works of law. As in Pisidian Antioch, this message, which to some was eternal hope and joy unspeakable, was to others obnoxious and bitter because of their self-righteousness, and the challenge a message like this brought against the system in which they were taking refuge. Now God bore witness to the gospel by granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Of course, this is not strange or unexpected by this point in Acts, but it does remind us that the visible manifestations of the victory of God are not always large crowds of converts and peace in the community. Sometimes one must look for particular manifestations of God's power, growth in the lives of individual disciples, prayers being answered, inner peace being experienced even in the midst of outer turmoil, Signs and wonders were extraordinary manifestations, but these others we might call the ordinary manifestations that are all the same powerful testimonies of God's presence and strength among his people. Verse 4, But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. 
This is interesting language. Luke mentions the apostles, plural, but the only apostle we know of in this party is Paul. In fact, Luke is going to do this again in verse 14, but there he will explicitly call Barnabas an apostle. In fact, this is the only place where Luke directly calls Paul an apostle. Usually, he reserves that term for the twelve. In this case, the term seems to be used in a very generic sense, in a way that we could perhaps translate it missionaries, and it would get the meaning across best. Just as the twelve and Paul had been selected and sent on a special mission by Jesus to bear witness to him and reveal his authority to his people and to disseminate gifts for their establishment in the faith, and thus they are called the apostles of Jesus Christ, here Paul and Barnabas and perhaps others had been selected and sent on this mission to preach the gospel by the congregation in Antioch, and thus they are the apostles of the church. Their prolonged ministry did have some positive effect. Part of the city sided with the apostles, but the other part sided with the unbelieving Jews. Verse 5, And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, evidently there had been a severe conspiracy going on in the shadows while Paul and Barnabas were busy preaching, they became aware of it, perhaps one of the locals who had become a Christian told them, and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding region. Lystra came first on this tour. It was about 40 miles to the southeast of Iconium, and there was no significant population of Jews there, evidently because there is no mention of a synagogue. In fact, the only Jews we learn about in this region are two women, Luke does not mention them at all here in Acts, but Paul does in his later writings. Their names were Lois and Eunice. Eunice was Lois's mother, and Lois was married to a Greek man who was evidently a pagan. While the women were very devout and knowledgeable in the Holy Scriptures, according to 2 Timothy 3, 14-17, they had been unable to influence even Lois's teenage son, who we will meet in a few chapters, to be circumcised, although they had taught him the scripture, and given him a sincere faith in and love for God, 2 Timothy 1, verses 3-5. Most of the people who lived in this region were pagans. There was a temple to Zeus in the area, and there was a popular myth preserved by the poet Ovid regarding how it was constructed. According to the myth, Zeus and Hermes, two of the Greek gods, came down to the region in the guise of vagrant men, and went from town to town seeking hospitality. Their purpose was to judge the region and determine if it should be destroyed. The legend said that they found an old couple who welcomed them in and went to great lengths to show them kindness. In time, they revealed themselves and granted the couple's wish that their home become a temple to Zeus and that they become the priest and priestess. During the Roman era, this region also became an epicenter of the imperial cult which deified the Caesar. Yet none of these things deterred the apostles from choosing this region as a field in which to serve Christ. And Acts 14 and verse 7 says, They were preaching the gospel there. In the absence of a synagogue, where did they preach? Perhaps they worked their way through some of the smaller burgs in the surrounding region, but in verse 8, they were in Lystra. 
and the unfolding scene suggests that they were preaching in the city gate, where a great deal of business was administered, and stories were shared by travelers. Verse 8 continues, And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This might seem like an unnecessary repetition, but the idea is that he lived in this area around the gate, and his condition was very well known and established throughout the community. This is another case of the Bible giving evidence for the veracity of a miracle. It might well have been fairly easy to deceive people in this pagan community, but Luke wants us to know this was no deception. Verse 9, This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed. There are three things to mention here. First, Luke says, This man heard Paul speaking. Back in Iconium, Luke reported that Paul and Barnabas so spoke that many believed. And now, this man heard Paul speaking, and as a result, we see that he has faith. Luke's history does not support in any respect the theory that faith arises from an abstract operation of the Holy Spirit on the hearts of certain individuals, but it consistently supports Paul's proposition that men and women are made capable of believing in Jesus by hearing preaching about him from a preacher, Romans 10 and verse 14, or to use his other expression, that faith comes by hearing, Romans 10 and 14. Luke says that during one of his sermons, or perhaps at its conclusion, Paul took special notice of this man, observing him intently. Some Bible teachers believe that references like this manifest the practice of the spiritual gift called the discerning of spirits, 1 Corinthians 12.10, and some call this the spiritual stare or the spiritual gaze. One man said, the one who thus gazes on another looks by the power of the Spirit at that person's very soul and sees what normally only God can see, the innermost thoughts and the intents of the heart. That seems to fit what we're reading in this case. But most noteworthy is that when Paul thus looked at the man, he saw that he had faith to be healed. The word translated healed can also be translated saved. And like in Acts chapter 3, perhaps it is appropriate to see both ideas here. Paul had most certainly been preaching about Jesus, crucified, resurrected, and reigning from glory. This man believed what Paul was preaching. He believed that Jesus could save him. It's possible that his mind was, at this point, mostly concerned with his earthly and immediate problem, that he was a cripple, and he believed Jesus could solve that problem, and it could happen through this man, Paul. But if he was not thinking at that moment about the greater salvation that Jesus could also give him, Paul certainly saw the physical healing as a vehicle by which to bring this man and others to that which was his greatest passion, justification from sins and redemption to the reign of God. So verse 10 continues, that Paul with a loud voice said, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. This is, of course, very similar to the scene in the temple in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 3. And you may remember there that when the people saw that miracle, they ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. And recall that term was the same used to describe the apostles gazing awestruck at the ascension of Jesus. Acts 3 continues, 
So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? And immediately he informs them that it was Jesus, the Christ of the God of Israel, whose power was on display. If that kind of response came from a Jewish crowd and the apostles had to immediately deflect a nearly worshipful devotion from a group of committed monotheists, then we should not at all be surprised at what happened in this pagan city. Verse 11, Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Since they were speaking the Lycaonian language, Paul likely did not understand what they were saying. Perhaps the full details were later reported to him by some of the Christians who remembered or witnessed the scene. But they immediately thought of the old legend of Zeus and Hermes visiting the region to evaluate it for divine judgment. Perhaps these people had not listened as carefully as the lame man, or perhaps the wonder of the miracle had just jolted them back into old ways of thinking. They probably assumed Barnabas was Zeus because he was more physically impressive than Paul. There's a second-century legendary version of this event that uh, was later circulated, which describes Paul as a short, bald-headed man with a hooked nose, not especially outstanding. But he was doing the talking, or as Luke says, he was the chief speaker, and that was the role of Hermes, the messenger of the gods. Surely, Paul and Barnabas could tell that this was an extreme degree of commotion. But whatever was lost in the language barrier, the fullness of what was taking place became clear when, according to verse 13, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of the city, then brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. Someone must have run to the temple and told them what was taking place, and the local priest, also fully aware of the legend and probably driven by a mixture of fear of judgment against the land if the gods felt slighted, and of excitement that he, like the old couple from the story, might get a wish granted, did not call for the gods to come to him. But he brought the bulls and the wreaths of flowers that were customarily used in those proceedings to the gate, presumably to build a makeshift altar and give the best gift a god could ask for. So the Lystrians' response was typically and thoroughly pagan, and in turn the response of Paul and Barnabas was thoroughly Jewish. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? What they tore seems to have been their outer garment, which was evidently unusual. Typically, they would tear the hem of their undergarment at the neck as a sort of ceremonial manifestation of despair. But this time it was less ceremony and more raw anguish. It is the last time we read about such a thing in the Bible, even though it was fairly common in the Old Testament. But it might have just seemed strange to the Greek pagans who were unfamiliar with the old Hebrew custom. Perhaps they thought that the human disguise was about to be discarded. If so, they must have been terribly confused and troubled when Paul spoke to them and protested against what they were doing. Men, why are you doing these things? One can imagine that at these words, the excitement and clamor suddenly stopped. 
Perhaps the priest froze in place with the knife at the bull's neck and said, What? Why wouldn't we do these things? What follows has been called Paul's first sermon to the Gentiles. But it really isn't a sermon so much as a word of protest. I suppose what we see here is the level of internal devotion in Paul, even in a moment of great agitation like this one. His words carry a power to point souls to God and to Christ. In fact, throughout the centuries, Christians have looked to this brief speech as a model for giving an apologetic for the faith to those with no background in the Bible. Verse 15, We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Paul begins with his own version of Peter's protest that the miracle was not by his power or holiness. He says, we also are men with the same nature as you. And when he follows this with the announcement, we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, the implication is that the living God, in contrast to the false gods like Zeus and Hermes, mere idols of human invention, which Paul calls useless things in keeping with the word of God himself when he described them to Moses in the law, the living God is the one whose power they have seen and which has amazed them, and thus they should turn and be converted to him. Paul identifies God with a title from the Hebrew scripture. In fact, much of his language is from the Hebrew scripture, although he does not attribute it because those scriptures would have meant nothing to these people. But the truths within them are still the source of his reasoning and information. So he calls God the one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. In the face of a God so great as that, there's no room for any other. Next, Paul summarizes the story of the Tower of Babel who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. The ancient forefathers of these very men once knew and worshipped the true God. But as Paul says in another place, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. And God gave them up and gave them over to their own ways and their own lusts, and they became futile in their thoughts and that's why their children are at this time worshiping useless things. Nevertheless, Paul says, when mankind for the greater part walked away from God, God did not completely remove himself from them. He did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. The things for which they worshiped Zeus were not the work of Zeus. They were the work of the God of Israel, the God who sent Jesus into the world, the God these people trusted in without knowing. The goodness of God is manifest, Paul says, in nature. There are curses and marks of corruption and sin in the world all around us, but there are also witnesses to the wisdom and love of God. 
and to those who will see him and accept him, he will reveal himself more perfectly and more fully in his word and in his son. Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. I'm a Christian Bible student and evangelist from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And this podcast is made available by the Congregation of Christians of which I am a member in East Tulsa. Please come meet us if you have the chance. You can learn more about us at our website, tulsachurchofchrist.com. Our music is from Andrew Martin, a very talented Christian brother in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. You can check out his SoundCloud for more beautiful and uplifting productions from him. For news, articles, previous episodes, or to request a Bible study or a lecture series with me, visit vbvpodcast.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a good review if you enjoy the studies. God bless and have a great week. From all the dark places of earth, heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation, come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's better exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.